0: Hello and welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on the game-changing potential of creating human-centric workplaces. I'm your host, Angela Howard, and I'm joined by co-authors of Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy. Michael Solomon and Rishon Bloomberg joined me to talk about how to multiply your own impact and your talent's impact by 10, even through talent market trends like The War on Talent and The Great Resignation. We're gonna explore what 10X talent is and how to best identify, attract, vet, employ, and retain talent that will make a difference in the future world of work. All right, Rishon and Michael, thank you so much for joining Humanly Possible. I am thrilled to have you both. Uh, And I'm just gonna kind of hand it off to you all to provide an introduction and tell us what you're working on It's really aligned with this this podcast, Humanly Possible, and especially um, this season in particular is around uh, disrupting the world of work. So I think this topic fits perfectly in. So, Rashawn, I will start with you. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, um, I would be remiss if I didn't say right up front that Michael and I have known each other since we were in third grade. So, most of what I'm going to say applies to him as well. So, he'll fill in some of the blanks. But basically, You know, we grew up on the mean streets of New York City in the 70s and 80s. um, And we were really exposed to a lot of different sort of entrepreneurial forces, but also forces from within the entertainment world. We grew up with a lot of people whose parents were in the business. And so at a very early age, I think that we viewed, um, you know, sort of the world of entertainment at the very least, uh, not necessarily from the point of like, oh, I love this band or I love this artist or I love this actor or musician or what have you but from the process of what was the work element going on behind the scenes there. And that really started us down a road of working with talent. Um, we formed a company in uh, 1995 called Brickwall management, where we manage entertainers. We've managed, uh, people across music and recording and writers, um, entrepreneurs we've consulted for other entertainment properties. And then around 2010, when people started talking about tech talent, uh, as rock stars, Mm -hmm you know, coders are the next rock stars, I think for us, a little bit of a light bulb went off because we had been working with tech talent uh, and hiring them for our entertainment clients for a long time and and felt there were some inefficiencies there. So we started a company called 10X Management, which is essentially a talent agency, like you'd see in entertainment, but for tech talent. So we represent uh, senior level tech freelancers and helping them sort of professionalize themselves and then rapidly um, onboard with companies that are looking for technical help. Um, not not uh, W2, but but freelance. Um, and then that sort of naturally led to us developing a company that helps W2 employees negotiate their compensation packages and a company called 10x Ascend. Um, and all of those experience across those different types of talent representation uh, led us to write a book called Game Changer, How to Be 10x in the Talent Economy, which, Michael, why don't you talk about that a little bit?
2: So thanks so much for having us, glad to be here. Um, So with these learns um, from all of these different sort of rock stars across different fields, we compiled what the commonality was about people who are excellent at what they do. And we did it through a lens for companies to understand if you want to succeed in the future, you're going to need these 10Xers, these high, high, high level performers who outperform their peers and if you're going to if you if you want to have those people and you're going to need those people you have to figure out how to attract them how to manage them and how to retain them and most companies especially enter- enterprise level companies are woefully underprepared for that for that transition so that's yeah. really what the first half of the book focuses on is how companies can make those changes and the second half of the book is really geared for the individual who might be at a company and wants to become a 10xer and wants to constantly be improving and create a continuous virtuous cycle of improvement so this is sort of very hands-on tactical how do you talk to your boss to help advocate for you how do you advocate for yourself how do you help other people who might be your peers and we really get into all of the different elements that that are are about self self-improvement um, as an employee at a, at a mm. big company and at a medium company
0: that's wonderful yeah i love the we were talking earlier i love the connection between the talent management world, entertainment space, and how you've used that. I think that's a really unique edge to how you're looking at this at this work. So before I get into some of the, the questions around how organizations, leaders, and employees can live this out, um, I'm just curious, you know what makes the both of you human? And Michael, I'll start with you this time, but uh, what about you personally has kind of driven some of the work and the passion behind it?
2: Um. My answer, and I've given it a little thought about this, um, it, it relates very much to the book. Um, I think one of the things that makes me most human is my comfort and and awareness of my flaws um, and that I'm not. Um, I do not, I don't run from them. I actually seek out people to help me become aware of them and even when they've told me and I continue to do it to tell me again, I really want to continuously improve and I think my humanity is expressed um, in the fact that as long as I'm alive, I'm going to be continuing to close the distance between who I am and who I want to be. And that's sort of the, the biggest expression of, mm-hmm. of, of my humanity. There are others, I, you know, I, I, I think that, I'll just add that we, between us, we have um, three for-profit businesses and three non-for-profit businesses, and they're all very directly about helping people. And I think mm. that, that is um, the, the the biggest secret about about humanity that I've learned that most people don't know is your experience as a human is gonna be much better if you spend a lot of time making other people's lives better than if you spend time just making your own life better, so.
0: I love that. How about you, Richard? Yeah, I think
1: my humanity, I see my humanity in the, the little things that I do on a daily basis, sort of the showing up for other people, mm. um, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, picking up after my kids or holding the door for somebody, uh, going into an elevator or, um, you know, just being there, being available for other people and the little things to me, what makes the biggest difference in the world are not the big gestures, but it's the daily little things that we do. And that's, you know, that's where I sort of, uh, take my joys from those little things that happen.
0: Hmm. And I mean, when you just to make a parallel here, I mean, Michael, you talk about, um, understanding your flaws and closing the gap, I would expect, you know, 10 Xers, that's a big behavioral part of um, the mentality, right? Which is you're always, there's always a gap. (laughs) There is always a gap. Um, So I, I love the connection here. And then Rishon, I think your point around it's the little things. I mean, I, I believe culture is just a culmination of our daily habits over time. You know, and then how do you start to direct those habits and those behaviors little by little and they compound to create more impact?
2: Well, and I would just add to that. Also, how do you, how do you keep those desires front of mind? Mm-hmm. So one of the yeah. things that we do in managing tech talent is we have to interview the talent we're gonna represent. And recently I started in every interview sharing our core values as a team that we've created for our, our employees and ourselves and saying these are not we're not imposing these on you this is how we want to be in the world and i'm giving it to you because if we're not living up to this please tell us
0: Mm. this
2: is what this is who we want to be and we want to show up for you this way and um i I mean so far nobody's come back to give it to us but if you if you (laughs) if you make your core values and you put them in a drawer what are the chances you're actually going to you know, be getting closer to them. Well,
1: that's what I was going to say. I feel like, you know, we do talk about this in the book, and I'm sure, Angela, you talk about this a ton, but company culture is so vital for making a company more competitive. Um, And it's not about having values up on the wall. It's about all those little things that you do day in and day out from the top down that demonstrates what the culture really is of a company because it may be very different from what's written in those words because of the actions of people. So, yeah, I think that I think you're absolutely right that the the culture is the culmination of those little actions we all take on a daily basis that show and demonstrate what we what we value, what's important to us.
0: And culture is also your worst behavior, right? Like even if one person is going against those values, that is your culture because that one person is it's that even if it's a little micro behavior it's spreading um so yeah i I love what you said
2: and not to get ahead of ourselves that's why companies need to factor culture into their hiring process in more like in increasing ways because it becomes more and more you know back in the day if we go back to the you know Mm. last, last century culture was not so much of a thing you came to work you did what you were told and there was you know very little nuance in terms of culture now mm-hmm. it's really important. And the, the people who you want to have working for you care about culture, and they also care about their, their their career and where this is taking them. And if they can't see that, they're not staying.
0: And I think it's interesting because the one thing I was thinking about, you know, working in the entertainment industry with artists who, like, this is their passion. Like, they, they have this huge connection to this this, uh, you know, their job, right? But it's it's also their passion. So I think there's some magic with companies too, where you find someone's passion and values match the company's passion and values. And that marriage probably gets the same type of uh, output or outcome as a musician or an artist who has who has that passion. And so there are connections. Yeah, high
1: performers are mission driven, right? Whether you're Mm -hmm. an artist, or you're a tech talent, or you're a banker. um, If you're mission driven, that drives you to do something that you care about, you want to do well in the world. um, And you have Mm. to align those values with the values of the company you're working with. It's it's key. I think in in the new world economy, where companies are smaller and have to do more with less, that mission and that purpose is, is vital for the people that work there.
0: Michael, do you have any any thoughts or follow-up?
1: Um, I, I, it's, it's interesting because the way you
2: phrased that question caused me to wonder, because we've never been asked this, can a 10Xer be a 10Xer without passion? In other words, can you be, mm. uh, 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 and I think the answer is no. I, I think that that's one of the things that makes somebody a 10Xer is you have to be loving what you do or at least loving it enough that you can lean in because there aren't any 10Xers who are sort of like, There are people who are really good at what they do, but to be a ten actor, you sort of have to be all in on that. Not not at the expense, not at the exclusion of other things, but.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that goes back to Michael, your point around hiring for this specifically is you want to, you don't want there to be any dissonance between the person you're bringing in and the mission you're trying to accomplish. Because then you, then that's where you get unhappy people or people who don't have passion or don't have the right human skills or technical skills to get the company where it needs to go
2: yeah and one Uh, one bad fit can bring down the whole team and the whole especially with
0: smaller companies
2: and and one of the things that's so important is when you discover that you have to excise it fairly quickly because it's corrosive and it grows and you know even somebody who's not horrible if they're just underperforming everybody else who's performing well all of a sudden sees this new oh if if that if that person gets away gets away or operates at that level and that's acceptable maybe i don't need to be working so hard
1: i had an interesting situation uh, happen i believe it was very early 2020 so just before covid hit i was working with somebody to negotiate a compensation package for them And they had actually freelanced. It wasn't a 10X client of ours um, on the 10X management side, but it was somebody who had been freelancing for this company for a number of years, but had never worked there full time. And we had gotten through most of the big hurdles of the negotiation and actually got the offer where she was comfortable with it. And then the CTO whom she was gonna report to, who she had worked with before, said Mm -hmm. to her some, I can't remember exactly what the question was that she asked, but he said something along the lines of, I don't believe in work-life balance. Like you get the work done when the work gets done. And Mm -hmm. that like killed the whole thing for her. She could not believe that that was the work environment that they were putting forth. Like they don't believe in work-life balance. And it shows you just how tenuous and important those kinds Mm -hmm. of things are in this new world we live in. I mean, like Michael said, last century work-life balance, I don't even think that that was a thing. Like nobody really understood or even knew what that was. but now it can completely derail even a relationship that you've had with somebody for a while when they actually express to you what they truly believe or what they believe the company's values are can make a huge difference.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's a change of mentality around more of a partnership between the employee and the and the business, 100%. right? You're offering your talent. We are, we are giving you a space to, uh, act out that talent and maybe build a legacy here but it is the conversation's different it's it's a two-way street it's i'm offering you my talent you're offering me a place to live out my legacy um so i want to kind of go to the next question here which is oh go ahead michael Can i just frame something yes. you just said
2: part yeah. of what we help people remember in in terms mm-hmm. of full-time job stuff is you're not actually trading just your talent for in exchange for compensation and other rewards, some of which are intrinsic and some of which are, are, are monetary, you're actually trading your most limited resource, huge numbers of hours on this planet, which you can't get more of for compensation. And when people start to think about that in those terms, they think about what they want out of their job in a different way. And I know one of the things that we see coming is, COVID was a big reckoning moment for people to sort of say, what am I doing with my life? Life is short. People are dying. You know, What do I want to do here? And I think, and we think, and, and some of this also comes from an advisor that we work with, that there's going to be tremendous churn in the next six months. People weren't churning because they weren't going to leave a job without any other opportunity. But I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of change as people really reconcile what do i want to do with my life
0: and you mentioned that resource that timeless resource of time yeah. right yeah. how do i want to spend my energy and my experience and i, I think i, I was writing, reading an article that this is we're going to see a shuffle a complete shuffle of the workforce and companies have a very narrow window to figure out how they change the the, the, the even the values of their business you know a lot of times we say oh values don't change I think we need to start looking at our values again because maybe your values were developed fifty years ago, and there's a re- there's a wave uh, movement of um, humanity in the workforce happening right now.
2: And there's a wave of changing values in our country and in our culture right now, over yes. overarching ones, and even companies that aren't thinking about this so much in terms about the culture or the mm-hmm. uh, the, the sort of uh, the the internal values they're all of a sudden saying, like realizing we have to have very different external values. We have to have di- we don't, have, unfortunately I don't think they're saying we have to have diversity. They're saying we mm. have to look like we have diversity, um, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm hoping that they're gonna actually get to the other side of that. But right now, half of it's an optics game, but it's just, it, it's getting to, I'm not saying it should be an optics game to be clear. It,
0: yeah. it, it yep. just is.
2: Um, And And you're absolutely
0: right. It's surface level. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you know, it's, 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 you know, that whole thing about having a seat at the table isn't enough if you don't have a voice at the table. Um, And I I think that all of these changes sort of have to be packaged together so that you're Mm -hmm. not doing one at a time, because companies have a hard enough time changing if you can do it in one fell swoop and get the culture right and get the values right and make the Mm -hmm. changes that the the pe- leaders are believing they need to do for optics reasons. I think you can have a really yeah. transformative. Moment. But we've
1: seen two really high-profile um, culture changes, very rapid culture changes, forced culture changes. Uber and WeWork. You know, these yes. are two companies that started out with a certain type of leader, a certain type of CEO, um, founder, a visionary that had a certain type of vision, and ultimately created you know a pretty toxic environment that almost took both of the companies down. Um, And so there was like a real reckoning that that occurred in both of those companies. And those are high profile examples, but I think that those kinds of things can occur and do occur um, and need to occur more often than not, because a lot of companies need to have that kind of reckoning.
2: And there's a really interesting corollary to that, which is it would seem like Travis from Uber has not learned that lesson because there are all of these articles about his new startup, which is again, wildly successful, being another toxic environment and back to the same bro culture of of, of Uber, which is, you know, as we talk about learning from mistakes and taking feedback, I was a little surprised to see.
0: So you bring up a good point. So you've got, you, you all work with startups a lot, which I think there's a lot with the speed and the rapid growth that impacts culture really early on. So what are the, like, if you could identify just a few secret sauce elements for startups, say, if you're if you were to focus on nothing else these are the few things you should focus on to get your the first foot forward in the right direction
1: well uh, let me let me just throw out the first one michael um, i think that every startup founder of any age should have some sort of a mentor whether they have a board of directors is a different story but there should be somebody that they work with to work on who they are as leaders, because I think that's, especially in in new startups with rapid growth, you've got somebody who had had an idea who worked towards the creation of that idea, the MVP, and then all of a sudden it explodes onto the scene and it becomes this rapid growth, um, and they don't really grow as leaders. Um, So I would say that that's probably the most important thing is to have somebody who's a mentor, somebody who you trust that can give you good feedback on how you as a leader are growing or not growing.
2: And that's not to say that anybody should be without that, or that is to say that nobody should be without that. So that's not because a startup founder is a weak leader, potentially. It's because every leader needs to have somebody that's providing oversight, that's helping them see their blind spots, that's giving them the, the hard feedback. And yeah. you know, we, we talk about this a lot in the book. We have been doing this a long time. We manage other people's careers We have an advisor um, in in, uh, Jonathan Loewenhaar from from Enjoy the Work who who helps us navigate our blind spots and our changes and the things that we don't know and brings other resources to the table. And he does nothing but advise startups. He took it upon himself to form a board of directors so that he would have the same oversight. And anybody on that board of directors, I assure you, he, he makes sure that they have somebody. So this isn't... A lot of times, I think people, founders, especially, think that this is a sign of weakness to have yeah. you know, sort of to, to put yourself in this position and not be the top of the food chain. It's the opposite. The best people make sure that they're not the top of the food chain.
0: Yeah, I think there's for everyone who's successful. There's usually a a gal behind the gal or a guy behind the guy who's you know helping to you know just be a gut check. You, you always need someone to be your gut check. I think, and, and also when it comes to leadership. You know, I talk about leadership a lot because leadership is it's counter to how we are as humans. You know, I'll explain this a little bit more because our brains are built for survival. We have selfish brains. So leaders have to be selfless and it's hard. That's why it's so hard for us for it to be our default because we have to actually we actually have to get outside of ourselves and lead in a way that's human centric. So. I have a firm belief that it's hard to do leadership and you have to constantly be working on it
2: yes and also our as you said our brains are wired for for survival what comes with yep. that is threat bias so that yes. we often miss opportunities because we're so, so we're trained to see threat and yes. you know sometimes by having somebody who's not in it in the same way with you they're like uh did you see that shiny thing that you didn't see that's really right. a great opportunity
0: yes absolutely so a mentor for the founders. Um, you know, We talked a little bit about values and missions. So I think that's maybe part of the secret sauce, yeah. but what else?
1: Well, you, you said right at the beginning, and I think this is part of the thesis statement for what you talk about, is people. Um, I think it has to be a people-first organization. I think every organization should be a people-first organization. I was recently fed a survey on LinkedIn. It had, it, the premise was, what should companies of the future be focusing on? Should they focus on people should they focus on innovation? Should they focus on business needs first? Should they focus on – I can't remember what the other one was. And I basically – the answer that I gave was you can't focus on any of those other things unless you focus first on your people. So to me, if you don't take care of your people and figure out how to we, – we use the word bespoke a lot – how to address the individuals as opposed to the group, um, I think you're really going to have trouble succeeding in the long term.
0: What do
1: you think, Michael? I mean, the
2: other things that come quickly to mind because I think we've now covered a lot of the human stuff is test everything, figure out the smallest way you can test something if you have an idea. Um, you know, build an MVP. Which, which these are sort of the same ideas. Don't mm-hmm. you know, don't add every bell and whistle. See what you can do. Stay laser light focused on on what you do. Don't try and be all things to all people do one thing do it well that's how all of the big companies started and then they can do everything once they
1: have money and power be, but, be focused but agile
2: yeah um, And yes flexibility is really important. Um, you know most of the startups that are successful iterated from something else along the way. they, they yeah. ran into a problem they figured out that there was a better way around it and they, and they did that. those are I think those are the, the most important ones but for the, the context of our conversation, I think what the two of you have already stated is really on, on point.
0: Yeah. And even the the testing piece, I mean, you have to um, you have to create a space of psychological safety for people to experiment. because if you don't or if you have leaders who are hoarding ideas, that's also problematic.
2: Well, that's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's one of, you know, one of the biggest problems with nonprofits is because they're using donor money. The, The culture of nonprofit organizations traditionally is not to take risks. And, mm. and it's really hard to be competitive in the world if you can't try things and it, then it's okay to fail. So when we talk to nonprofits, we are often encouraging them to understand and educate their boards that this is how business is done. And nobody learned to walk without having sort of wobbled around for a while and, and figured yeah. out how their legs worked. It's, you fall down when you learn to walk and you've gotta be able to give people people space and freedom to try those things. And, that's for the company and for the individuals that work at the company.
0: Yeah. I think I mean, human centered design is really focused around this idea of mistakes and failing, failing, you know, a friend of mine, Alex Draper, he talks about falling off curbs, not cliffs, you know, letting your people Mm -hmm. fall a little bit to get back up, um, but not giving them lack of support. So they fall off a cliff. Um, but also like play, uh, I had an episode recently around the power of play. And really when we talk about play, it's it's being in a state of flow. And I know you you both talk about this concept of being in a state of flow. Um, so maybe we can, I'll, I'll kind of gear our next question around the 10Xer, who, who is that? Tell us a little bit, Michael, more about what that means. What are some of the attributes of a 10Xer?
2: Okay, let me start with the definition. So a 10Xer <laughs> is somebody who is arguably, and this does exist in reality, 10 times better than their peers. Um, that sounds crazy, we've seen it, we've had companies that came to us and replaced a team of 33 people with three and then it grew to five, but um, to rebuild a product, not even to like just maintain, it, like it, it was exactly the story. The thing that makes it someone a 10Xer is that interest and openness and feedback, curiosity, they they're curious rather than getting some feedback and being like, no, that's not me. It's, <laughs> it's much more. Really? I didn't know I was doing that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I want to better understand what your experience was. I mean, mm. Just the different ways that, that, that they approach things, a, a true love of problem solving. Um, people who are 10 Xers because they're curious, they like hard problems. They like, they really like, um, to to have a challenge because most things are not challenging to them. They're usually passionate not just about one thing but about many things, but that's an observation more than a requirement. Uh, mm-hmm. And they are passionate about the thing that they are 10X with. Rish, what, what did I forget? No, I don't
1: think you forgot anything. I think that you know we talk about the two sides of it. It's high IQ and high EQ. Everybody knows what IQ is. EQ is that ability to be human, communicate with others. Because if you, if you just have a high IQ but you can't really explain to anybody else what's going on or why you're doing what you're doing – the likelihood is you're not going to be as successful in whatever it is you're doing. Um, so it's all those those uh, elements that Michael talked about. But if you don't have that EQ, that human element, that way to connect with people, um, it's never going to really work. So a 10xer is somebody who is just exponentially better in a lot of ways than most people are, and that comes from, you know, they're born, but they're also nurtured into it. And um, you know, you're born with a certain IQ, but you can feed that IQ and you're born with a certain proclivity for how you deal with people in the world. But if you're curious and you constantly seek feedback, feedback and improvement, you'll get better and better as time goes on. And that's the second half of the book is is sort of all about that. Um, Mm. And there are 10 Xers, but most of us aren't 10 Xers and most of us will never be 10 Xers, but we can still strive to be more 10 X like and push ourselves down that spectrum.
0: And what I, I mean, working with organizations, you know, I, I feel like the biggest, and you mentioned this in your book, I believe, which is, you know, attracting, retaining, developing, being a destination for those 8Xers who want to be 10X or, you know, trying to close that gap. How can organizations and leaders support a organization full of 10Xers?
2: Wait, you want to Michael,
0: well, maybe you start. Okay, I'll, I'll
2: start. <laughs> so okay. I think that the most important thing to understand, and we touched on this before, is that you can't manage all 10Xers the same way they they have a lot of similar qualities but a good manager well let's start with attracting in order to bring people in you have to know where they are and where they want to go and most hr departments will interview and maybe they'll interview around culture and they'll interview around skills but when they're when it comes time to making a job offer typically they ask one question before they make an offer which is what are your sal- what are your compensation requirements um, yeah. They they might ask what are you making now, which is not legal everywhere, but they, those are the mm-hmm. those are really the only things they ask. We created something to help people who are going through the job process called a lifestyle calculator, which um, mm-hmm. we, we can share a link with you and, and you can post. But it's got the twenty four different elements that may be relevant for your job package, and you get a hundred points to distribute them amongst all of the different categories. So. Right off the bat, the person who's doing this for the first time maybe ever has really been very data focused on what's most important to me. Um, and some of those things are professional development or paid time off. It's uh, you know being able to do outside projects. There are all kinds of interesting things. They're not all relevant in every instance. We, of course, get an instant idea of what's important to this person. Other than the people who fill out 100% on salary, never seen two people fill this thing out the same way. And I don't think that we will. Um, everybody's their own snowflake. And that's often used in a negative way. I'm using that in a positive way. And companies need to start thinking about this because yeah. I assure you that if you did, if, if an, if, an HR department did this before they make an offer, they will actually save themselves money over time because they will be able to make an offer that fits somebody's goals. And for, for one person, it may be more important to them to have, you know, Fridays off mm-hmm. than a lot of money. And until you ask the question, and so I just don't understand why we're still doing this. We have personalized medicine. Playlists are recommended to you on Spotify songs and movies on Netflix and all all the platforms. Everything is customized and personalized, except as we talked about, this is how you give up your actual life, your time on the planet, your hours. Not really personalized. A little, little personalized in the negotiation, but not really. And companies aren't approaching it that way. So that's where we're gonna start. Once you get them in the door, it's the same thing. You know, Beth over here and George over here are at different points in their life. George Mm -hmm. has three kids at home, Beth doesn't and is Mm -hmm. living a very different lifestyle. And for Beth, the ping pong table and the gym on the campus mean a lot because she's at that stage in life. George wants to go home to his kids. All he cares about is getting out of there. Let him work from home and he's much happier. Mm -hmm. And my point is, if you don't think about that as a management technique and a management tool of who is this person? Oh my God, they're having a hard time in their marriage. I have to be aware of that. They're moving, they've got a sick parent or whatever it is. It's not to say that you let them off the hook on their job, but you can approach them from a humanistic yeah. standpoint and provide comfort and provide care. And I can tell you that we have, as, as employers, we have ridiculous, um, uh, uh, it's the opposite of attrition. Um, retention. Like people, retention. Retention. People stay with us far longer than any any scale would say they should, and I believe that it's wholeheartedly that it's because we actually care. Like we and they know we care, and they feel it and they see it and we do it all the time. And it's not because we care with dollars and cents. We're not always in a position to be able to do that. It's because we care every day, even when the dollars and cents aren't the motivating factor. Sorry, that was long.
0: No, that was beautiful. I I love the and it kind of goes back to this idea of, you know, we've built organizations, not for humans. We've built them for widgets and machines and processes. And so we really have to kind of, I personally, I feel like we need to really relook at the traditional place so people can bring their human to work, um, and not this like work human to work. (laughs) You know, it's not like you're at home and then you put on a new face and like, oh, all right, I'm gonna be professional today or I'm gonna you know, act different so I can fit into this other world. It's, it's the opposite. It's we're actually creating the workspaces to be authentic.
1: Well, today the workplace is your home. So it's, right. you know, it's, right. it's like you're working inside your home, your kid's school, you know, everything. The gym, you're like, I'm, I'm working in the gym. Yeah. Like it's,
2: it's everything. I'm working in the in restaurant. Um, I, I think that, you know, this is really exemplified. We, we advise a coaching startup called A-Plan Coaching and the thing that distinguishes them from anybody else that we're aware of in the competitive space is they require that when a company engage them to coach the employees, that the employees get to set a minimum of a third of the goal It doesn't have to be professional. It can be, but it's their choice. So, yeah. so and and the, the thinking there, which clearly, you know, and we know is you can fix everybody's professional, everything or improve them or whatever. And if their personal life is a disaster, their work life is not gonna be peachy. It's not gonna be rosy. And if and if companies can start thinking more along the, the, that philosophy, they're gonna see better results.
0: Yeah, I. Um, so I, I wasn't gonna ask this question because I, I ask it a lot in some of my other episodes, but you both have such an interesting vantage point on this. We are in the middle of COVID, a pandemic, and organizations are in a tizzy because they're trying to accommodate and work with this like hybrid workforce right But there are some companies who have been doing it for a while this is nothing new a remote workforce but what is your what are your vantage points on how employers leaders should be managing this this new world should everybody go back to work should we stay in a hybrid work workforce what's what's going to be the future of work um yeah
1: uh i I mean look i Selfishly hope we return to a more traditional in office um, where it makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. I live in a big city. There are tons of office buildings here. The idea of office buildings being empty and, you know, it it feels very strange. Um, And perhaps that's like a boomer idea in me. But so I, I would like to see a return to quote unquote normal. That said... We have been huge proponents since the inception of 10X of remote work, not just as a lifestyle opportunity for companies, but so that they can access the best and brightest from almost anywhere. So I do think a blended workforce is the future, whether that blended workforce is full-time, freelance, domestic, international, onsite, remote, you'll have to have some blend of that. Um, We have in our office and have always sort of had an open door policy that if you need to work from home in a given day because there's something you need to do, great, work from home in a given day. Um, but I do think there is something to be said for community around people being in the same location. Um, it's not mandatory, it's certainly not mandatory in every vertical, but I do think hmm. that there's a benefit that can happen with that. Um, in, much in the same way I think there's a benefit to having both a diverse workforce, and a blended workforce from W 2 to 1099, so full time versus freelance. Mm-hmm. I think you, you bring all these different ideas together by having these different types of, of workforces. Um, so I, I'd like to see the future return to the past, but with much more flexibility.
2: I have a, a slightly different take, which is this was a great kickstart to a revolution, and I'm, I'm supportive of it. And bringing this back to the human side of things, Um, mental health problems have gone up so much during the pandemic and there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of reasons, but a lot of it is isolation. Um, Well, it's forced isolation. Forced, forced isolation, but it's also isolation. And we put tremendous um, efforts in place or, or activities in place to keep our team from getting isolated during the pandemic, which included, you know, multiple meditation activities, the week and, and some check in calls where there's no agenda, it's just sort of seeing how everybody's doing. And despite that, we lost an employee to suicide this year. And, um, and that is a very hard reality to deal with. And I think that beyond just the need for people to be in a workplace to collaborate, and that there are there is magic that happens in a room. I also think that if we really stay in a fully or mostly fully isolated state, we are gonna have other real problems. Well, humans
1: are social. They're social by nature. You may be an introvert, another person may be an extrovert, but humans are social creatures. So forced isolation or separation is very different than voluntary separation or, or working remotely voluntarily is very different than having to work remotely because there's no other option. So I think we're all agreed that the idea of isolation, forced isolation and lockdowns is horrible and we'd like mm. to see that never happen again. Um, mm. But I but I do think that the the uh, flexibility for people to have that, but what I think Michael's speaking to is a little bit more intentionality. When you have a distributed workforce that's not localized, you're not physically in touch with people, you don't see what they're going through, you can't maybe see body language or you know, somebody holding their at their desk, sitting with their hand on their head, you know, you don't get to see some of the outward signs of issues happening. You have to be much more intentional. And as Michael said, you know, we created these different touch points, which were voluntary. We didn't force people, um, but they were specifically designed to try and bring back a little bit of that humanity unrelated specifically to work back to the remote workplace. So I think that that intentionality for a distributed team is, is incredibly vital.
0: Yeah, I think what I, um, where I've kind of distilled this down because there's so much out there, right? You've got people who are doing all remote work. You've got people who are telling everybody to come back. I think both of those companies have, those types of companies have it wrong. I think it is around choice. I think the, the, the feeling of having a choice, the actual, you know, not just the feeling, but the actual reality of having choice is the most human, the autonomy is the most human part of that equation. And I think it's the most comfortable for us um, to be able to say you know what i know what outcomes are needed and i will get that work done how i need to and i will build community and relationships the way i need to um but no one snowflake right is the same <laughs> and my choice and freedom and flexibility might be different than yours and so i think there is that element of choice and that leadership team member relationship that communicate, that open communication um, to your point, Rashawn, that needs to happen. I think to realize what that choice would be in order to create the best experience for the team member.
2: Yeah, agree. So, I, I think that options are always good and you know, yes. you know, who, who really likes choices, smart people, smart people.
0: Really yes, like <laughs> very true. Very true. 10 Xers specifically. So, um, so I just wanted to close first of all, I just this was an amazing conversation. I think we covered a lot. I mean, we covered like the secret sauce around what a 10Xer is. We talked about, I think the fact that organizations and leaders need to support, there's some elements that we need to support 10Xers. So you can't just have a, a company full of 10Xers without ecosystem that supports the 10 x scene. You know, you need to support the verb, the doing, the acting of those things um, and the behaviors that you need to close the gap on anyone who's not a 10Xer. Also anything else, just any parting words or anything else that you want the audience to hear about um, the concept or the book or any element that you feel like we didn't cover today. Michael, let's start with you.
1: I'm gonna actually pass that to Rish. I think he's pretty good <laughs> okay. at um, it. Okay. I, I don't have something super overarching, but there is one thing I wanted to add to managing 10Xers or an environment that's uh, suitable for 10Xers. And that is a quote from Steve Jobs, or at least attributed to Steve Jobs, where he said, we don't hire the best and brightest so we can tell them what to do. We hired the best and brightest, so they can tell us what to do. And I think that the, the world of micromanagement that has been prevalent for mm-hmm. a long time. Um, that's one thing that I think we have to really do away with. And there has to be the freedom for people who have exponential capability to unleash those capabilities on a company. So I think that's a lot of what a manager should be doing is figuring out what that individual needs to do to be freed up to do what they do best.
2: And I'll take the question back now. Um, We have a book website called GameChangerTheBook.com, which um, is not just about promoting. I'm not not saying that because I want you to go buy the book, although I do. God, you're such a name dropper, Michael. I'm, I'm saying that because there's a quiz on that website that allows you to evaluate how 10x you are and how 10x your company is. And I think people have a lot of fun playing with that. Um, Plus our
1: contact information is on the site, our, too, if yes, you want to reach out to us, our LinkedIn, uh, other, other contact touch points. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Yeah, we'll make sure all of those links are um, in the podcast link and in our marketing. And so, and I would just add, I was on the website earlier today. There's a ton of resource. Um, obviously, you should reach out to both Rashaun and Michael um, and buy the book. But there's also a ton of resources on the website, like the quiz. Uh, as well, so uh, just I want to thank you both so much. Uh, this was a great conversation. I could talk all day about this stuff, um, but Likewise. but you two brought such an interesting perspective. I think with your backgrounds, but also your um, your insight and your wisdom on how we really need to change the game of work and look at it from a human centric lens, but also helping individuals understand how they can close the gap on becoming their most their best selves yes. and increasing their potential
1: thank you so, so much thank for you having both. us no, it, was, it was a great it was a, conversation it was a pleasure, yeah. and we could also
2: keep talking about it so you'll let us know when <laughs> to talk more
0: yes i was gonna say we would love to have you on again um but thank you both so much michael Rashawn. appreciate your, your time and your wisdom today.
1: thank you thank you
0: Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Humanly Possible Future of Work Conversations podcast. We're so grateful that you're here and support from our listeners like you means the world and it ensures that we can continue to bring you timely topics and influential guests. If you're interested in supporting the podcast further, please subscribe, share it with your friends and leave a review. Keep changing the world and we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.